Jesus' most personal and powerful teachings are conversations with his disciples in the book of John. Nowhere else is his instruction both so simple and so deep. Take your place in the upper room to hear the heart of God that still speaks today. A couple of years ago, Cross Point's mission team made a, a few books available to the congregation, books that would provide an insight into the mission field around the world as it exists today. One of the books that we made available was this book. It's entitled I Am N. It's from the Voice of the Martyrs, and it gives a picture window into what life is like for some of our Christian brothers and sisters who live in those parts of the world where Christians are persecuted for their faith. There's a story in this book that I want to share with you this morning. I've condensed it a bit. The story is entitled Loving Christ Above All. In the small village of Yande in Somalia, Musa Muhammad Yusuf had many roles. He was husband to Halima, his wife, father of three cherished sons, and follower of Jesus Christ. Musa led a house church. God had called him to share the truth of Jesus in a country where people strongly opposed that truth. As he walked among the people in this village, Musa would engage in quiet conversations, hoping that they would lead to what he called Jesus talk. Often he would notice that one woman would listen intently. She wouldn't come close, but she would listen to his words from the edge of the group of people, taking in each word that Musa spoke. Musa knew this woman was married to a high-ranking leader of an Islamic extremist group in Somalia. And yet he prayed that he would have the opportunity to lead this woman to Christ. He knew this would be dangerous both for himself and for his family. A friend tried to talk him out of pursuing this woman with the gospel, arguing that he put his wife and his sons in danger. Musa said, God is bigger than my family. I love my wife. I love my children. But we are told in the Bible to love Christ above all. The next day, God answered his prayers by causing this woman to come closer to him than ever before. He sensed that the moment was right, and he very cautiously handed her a Bible that he carried in his bag. She knew what he was giving her and quietly said, thank you. A week later, she told Musa that she had found a place in her heart for the Christ of the Bible. I am committed to following him, not Allah. Musa didn't see her for a week. The next time he saw her, her face was purplish with bruising. Her husband had noticed a change in her and had asked why. When she told him that she now followed Jesus, he beat her. Other men from the Islamic extremist group showed up at Musa's house, yelling at him for converting this woman. They demanded that Musa tell them where another Christian leader they were looking for could be found. When they left, Musa's wife insisted that he leave Somalia and go to a refugee camp in Kenya. Two days later, the men returned to Musa's house. When they learned that he was gone, they decided to kill two of his sons, punishing them for the sins of their father. In many parts of the world, our brothers and sisters in Christ face persecution for their faith. They put their faith in Jesus. They choose to follow him, knowing that it could cost them their jobs, they could cause them to be placed in jail. It could cost them beatings. 
It could even cost them their life. And yet in spite of the dangers, in spite of what it could cost them, they choose to follow Jesus and trust him with their lives. You know, as I read these stories, I am inspired by their courage. I'm inspired by their boldness. I'm inspired by their commitment to follow Jesus, whatever the cost. Last week, as we were reading in John chapter 15, we saw and read Jesus' words as he was giving some very difficult news to his disciples. He was telling them about what was to come, that the world was going to hate them because they had hated him first, that following Jesus was going to cost them something. Today in our passage, we're going to see Jesus' reassurance to them that they won't face these challenges alone that they are going to have the Holy Spirit who will be with them and guiding them and protecting them and helping them during these difficult times. Jesus says, all this I have told you so that you will not fall away. I've told you this so that you won't stumble. I know that you're sorrowful. I know that the things I'm saying to you cause you to be sad and, and create great distress within you. But I'm not saying them to you just so that they're going to cause you anger. It's going to cause you upset. I don't want you to fall away. I don't want you to stumble. I want you to tell, I want to tell you about this before it happens so that you can know that I knew about it even before it happened. I'm fully aware of what you're going through. The word stumble is in several translations of this passage. It's not in the NIV, but it's in several others. And in the Greek, the word stumble means to offend or to cause to stumble or to fall away. I'm telling you this because I don't want you to stumble. I don't want you to fall away. I want you to stand firm in your faith and not be surprised when these things happen to you. I want you to know what to expect. Jesus is preparing them for trouble that's coming. In verse 2 of our passage, it says, They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. Jesus is telling them, they're going to put you out of that faith community that you have lived in your whole life. Your family, your friends, those that you have done life with are going to reject you because you choose to follow me. And those who kill you will think they're doing God a favor. When I read these words, I immediately think of a young rabbi from Tarsus by the name of Saul. Saul believed that it is his sacred duty to arrest and to persecute those who call on the name of Jesus. He would go from city to city finding followers of Jesus and persecute them. We're told in the book of Acts that he left Jerusalem and headed north to Syria, to the city of Damascus. That he was carrying orders from the high priest to find those who followed Jesus, to arrest them, to excommunicate them, even to eliminate them. Saul was one of the chief opponents of that early church. And yet when Saul of Tarsus was converted, he became Paul the Apostle. And then as he... God's chief missionary reaching that Gentile world, he faced the same persecution that he had visited on that early church. He would go to a city, and he would go first to the synagogue because he said the gospel is first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. He'd be thrown out of that synagogue, and often a, a riot would follow. He would be beaten, he would be arrested, he'd be thrown in jail, and then he'd head to the next city. He'd go into the synagogue, he'd be thrown out of the synagogue, he'd be beaten and thrown in jail. Then he'd go to the next city and the next city and the next city. Imagine after a while when he entered a town, he'd probably find somebody and say, could you tell me where the local jail is? I want to know where I'm going to spend the night tonight. 
The same persecution that Paul visited on that early church was persecution that he experienced himself as he served God, bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, if you know anything about church history, you know that those early Christians in the Roman Empire had it tough. Many were fed to lions just for sport. Many were burned at the stake. Some were tied to poles with ropes and covered with tar and used as living torches for, for Nero's chariot races. The history of the early church is filled with gruesome acts. Jesus is telling his closest followers here what they can expect. Peter, James, John, the other disciples, the other 11 disciples, we, we know that Judas was no longer with them at this time, telling them what they could expect. They were going to face very difficult situations. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is this, what would motivate these men to, to suffer the way they suffered? to die the way that they died if this was just a myth. History tells us that 10 of the 11 disciples were martyred for their faith. Only John was not, and he was exiled to the island of Patmos. What would cause these men to suffer the way they suffered, die the death they did, if this was just a myth? This message that they were proclaiming, this Jesus who died and rose again, if this was just a hoax, you would think that one of them would have broken. One of them would deny their faith to save their neck, and yet not one of them. Every one of them was willing to die the most horrible death to do this for their faith, to do this for their Lord. Jesus says, I've told you this, so when their time comes, you remember that I warned you about them. In verse 3, they will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. Now what's interesting is this is happening in religious settings. This is happening in the synagogue, right? This is being done by those who claim to know God and claim to represent God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I've told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you. Now, Jesus has told them a few times that he's leaving, that he is not going to be with them much longer. He says, I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me. None of you ask, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. We need to go back to chapter 14 for just a second to, to help us to understand what's going on in this, this passage. In Fort John 14, 28, Jesus says, You heard me say, I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now let's look back at verse 5 of our passage. But now I am going to him who sent me. None of you ask me, where are you going? Disciples weren't asking where Jesus was going. The fact is, they didn't care about where. What they cared about was why. Why is this happening? Why are you leaving? Why, if you say you love us, Jesus, why would you leave us? They didn't care about where. They cared all about why. Jesus was going home, right? He was going home to be with the Father. 30 years ago, he had, he had left heaven to come to earth in the incarnation. Now he was going home, but they weren't concerned. They weren't caring about where he was going. They weren't caring about what Jesus would gain. All they cared about was what they would lose. They cared about what they were about to lose rather than what they were about to gain. It's the wrong focus. They were asking why. 
See, the coming of the Spirit was to their benefit. You know, I'm convinced that many people who are not yet Christian focus on the wrong things when you talk to them about Christ, when you talk to them about accepting Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Very often they focus on the wrong things. They focus on what they might lose in that exchange. But what about my friends? I might lose some friends. My friends might not like me anymore. Well, maybe. But you're going to gain a friend who sticks closer than a brother. But I'm, I'm going to lose popularity. I'm going to lose popularity here on earth. But not in heaven. But my life is going to change. I'm going to lose that old life. What happens then? Well, perhaps... Maybe you will lose that old life. In fact, you will lose that old life, but you're going to gain a new one. You're going to gain an eternal one. There's a missionary by the name of Jim Elliott who was killed by the Akua Indians in Ecuador. He was a missionary along with several others. There were five couples that, that moved to Ecuador to, to reach the Akua Indians with the gospel. And, and very soon after they arrived, they were martyred for their faith. Jim Elliott is famous for, for a line that he said while he lived. He said these words, he is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Don't you love that? He is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Focus on the right things, not the wrong things. Focus on the eternal, not the temporary. Jesus says, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. Now, Jesus knows his disciples. He's spent almost every waking moment with them for the last three years. He knows them intimately, and he knows what they're thinking. It's written all over their faces. They're saying, this is horrible. I hate what you're saying, Jesus. But Jesus says, very truly, I say to you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. I have to imagine, picture the disciples hearing these words, it's for your good, and they say, really? you got to be kidding, right, Jesus? I don't like that plan. This doesn't sound like good news to me. No, no, I, I, I vote that we, I, I say we take a vote, and we vote that you stay, Jesus. We like that plan better. But no, very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away, because unless I go, the advocate, other translations have this as the helper, will not come. Four times in the upper room discourse that we are looking at in this sermon series, the Holy Spirit is referred to as either the advocate or the helper. Jesus says, you need help. You need all the help you can get. And the one I'm sending to you is, is going to be with you. You're not just going to receive help. You're going to receive the helper. He's not just going to provide you with resources. He's going to live inside of you and be available to you every second of every day. No, I'm going to send the helper. But he won't come unless I depart. And when I depart, he is going to come to you. And he is going to be there with you. And he's going to help you through all the difficulties of life. Jesus says, because I know that the Christian life comes with challenges. There are times where you may wonder, can I get through this? This is too hard. How am I going to make it through this? Those are times when you need the helper, right? And the glorious thing is that he is available to us every second of every day because he lives within us and he will never leave us. I love an illustration that the, the Chicago evangelist D.L. Moody used while he was alive. D.L. Moody was a, a simple preacher who loved simple illustrations and simple explanations. And one time he was preaching to his congregation, he held up a, a glass 
And he asks them a question. He says, how can I get the air out of the glass? Nobody raised their hand and said, well, I suppose I could use a pump. I could pump the air out, but that would probably create a vacuum and, and shatter the glass. So how do I get the air out of the glass? He walked over and he picked up a water pitcher and he filled the glass with water to the top and he said, problem solved. I was able to get the air out of the glass by filling the glass with water. He says, that's the Christian life. That's the victory that's available to us through the Holy Spirit. The key to getting rid of the air was to put the water in. The key to getting rid of those, those sins and those problems and those things that we try to get rid of one at a time is to simply fill ourselves so full of the Holy Spirit that that's all that's left. Be filled with the Holy Spirit so much that, that there's nothing left even of you. Peter says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's being filled with, it's being constantly filled with the Spirit that is the key to the Christian life. Jesus says, if I go, I will send him to you. Now, Jesus said, I will send another helper to you. There are two words he could have used for this another helper. He could have used the word heteros, which means another of a different kind. But the word he used was alis, which means another of exactly the same kind. I'm sending you another helper exactly like me. Think about it this way. Suppose somebody gives you a CD to listen to. Now, this illustration is for the over 40 in the crowd because nobody under 40 uses CDs anymore. Somebody gives you a CD with a music from a band that they want you to listen to, and you listen to a couple of songs, and you say, this is horrible. I never want to listen to another song by this band again. And you, you think, I'm going to throw it away, or maybe I'll give it to somebody who likes bad music. And then you say, I'm going to get another CD. Now, you're not saying you're going to get another CD just like the one you've got. I'm going to get a hetero CD, another one different than the one I've got. Or perhaps this scenario. You have a CD that you love, and you share it with a friend to, to share this music with them, and they say, I love it. Thanks for sharing the CD. I absolutely love it. And you say, good. I love it too. Why don't you keep that one and I'll get another one for myself. Now you're going to say, I'm going to get a, an Alice CD. One just like the one I gave you. I want to give you this one just like the one I shared with you. Jesus is saying, when I leave, I will send you another helper and he's going to be just like me. Exactly like me. I've been with you for three years. I have been your helper. You have come to me with things, and I have been there for you, and now I'm going, but he's going to be here. He's going to be just like me. He's going to be available to you all the time, helping you in all the same ways that I've been helping you as well. Third thing I want us to see from our passage is that the Spirit empowers our witness. And when he comes... When the Spirit comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin because people do not believe in me. About righteousness because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. There are three things that Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit will do. First of all, he's going to convict or convince. We can translate that as convince. He's going to convince the unbelieving world about sin. Because people do not believe in me. A person will only be open to receiving Jesus as their Savior if they understand and believe that they need to be saved. 
They will not ask Jesus to save them unless they believe that they are, are a sinner and, and need saving. And so the Holy Spirit convicts or convinces people who are not yet believers that they are in need of saving. Now, I love this, right? It's not my job to convince them. It's not your job to convince them. Sometimes we'll hear somebody say, you, I got to go out there and I got to save people. Well, no, you don't, right? Sometimes you'll hear somebody say to the person who led them to the Lord, you saved me. Well, no, they didn't, right? They may have pointed them to right places to receive help. They may have thrown them the rope, but it's God that pulled them in, right? It is not our job to convince or to con convict somebody. That is the Holy Spirit's job. We are each called to go and share the good news of Jesus Christ. We are all called to be evangelists in our own way being workers in the harvest field, telling people about Jesus, but we are not the ones who convince. That is the Holy Spirit's job. I mean, how else do you explain Peter at Pentecost, right? Peter gets up at Pentecost and preaches that sermon. The same Peter who denied knowing Jesus three times. The same Peter who said all kinds of dumb stuff when he was walking with Jesus. That Peter and on Pentecost Sunday, he stands up in Jerusalem and he preaches the gospel news. And the Bible tells us that about 3,000 people came to, safe, came, came to faith. The Bible says that they were cut to the heart. They were convicted in their heart. Not because Peter was so eloquent, but because the Holy Spirit did the convicting. Second thing that the Holy Spirit is going to do, he's going to convict or convince about righteousness. Because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. When Jesus died and rose again and ascended to heaven where he took his place at the right hand of God the Father, he had completed the work that he had been sent to do. And God the Father says, this is the righteousness that I will accept in my presence, the righteousness of my son. That's why we need to be in Christ. That's why we need to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Now I've noticed that by and large, People will carry around a, a scale that they use to measure righteousness, measure goodness. They may not articulate it this way, but, but they measure different people's righteousness or goodness this way. Whereas a, a criminal who is, who is habitually committing crimes might be 10 or 20% righteous. He's, he's at least good to his family, right? Or somebody else is a little bit better. They, they do some good stuff and they're 30 to 40% righteous. Or then somebody who's really good and, and maybe even, even as religious and they do 50, they're 50 or 60 or 70% good. And then there's God who's 100% good. They measure righteousness on a sliding scale. But the Bible tells us this about mankind, that none are righteous, not even one. Jesus said, why do you call me good? There is no one good. Only God is good. Right? That's God's standard of righteousness. Only he is good. No one else. He is perfect. Now sometimes people who are religious think that they can change their own scale, adjust their scale by doing good stuff. If I do enough good stuff, God's going to accept me. I mean, he's got to. I've, I've earned it, right? And so their measure of righteousness is that old Avis rental car motto, we try harder. Bible tells us that all of our good works, our righteous works, are like filthy rags, right? We can't measure up to God's perfect standard, and so we need Christ's righteousness. We need to be clothed in him and place our trust in him rather than ourselves. 
We need to enter into God's presence, but we can only do that if we're perfect, if we're perfectly righteous. And by grace, that's what followers of Jesus are because Christ's righteousness becomes our righteousness. And then third, the Holy Spirit will convict or convince of judgment. He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. The Holy Spirit convinces the person that not only are they sinners in need of a Savior, not only are they not righteous in their own merit and their own works, but he also convinces them that there is consequences to this all, and that is called judgment. There really is a final judgment. And left to ourselves, we will stand before God on our own. But as a follower of Jesus, we don't stand on our own because his righteousness, Christ's righteousness, becomes ours. And it's the Holy Spirit who convinces. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not ours, it's his. In verse 12, Jesus says, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. When we first come to faith, whether it be as a child or as it be as an adult, there are things that we know now that we did not know then, right? The Lord reveals things to us over the years that we follow him. And he's patient with us as we grow. He reveals things as we need them. He knows that there are things that we don't understand as, as new to the faith Christians. Things that he will teach us later. And as we mature, he teaches us new things. And as we put those into practice, he teaches us more and more and more. I know that there's much more to say to you. More than you can now bear. I want you to think of a, a young child that you know. Think of a, a two-year-old or a three-year-old or a four-year-old. And then think about a book that you've read that had a huge impact in your life. Maybe it's a textbook from college that caused you to fall in love with a subject that's now your career. I want you to think about that child, that, that in your love for that child, you chose to wrap up that textbook and give it to them as a present for Christmas. That four-year-old's not going to be jumping up and down as they receive that book, are they? Right? Now, they may take it off their shelf in 20 years and appreciate then, but, but not now. Right now, they would much prefer a simple gift like a Baskin-Robbins ice cream cone because that's something that they can understand right now. That's the way it is here. Jesus says that there's going to come a time when you can bear it. When he, the Holy Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will guide you into all the truth. Now, the truth is not what you feel the truth to be right now. This is specific truth. This is not generic truth. The Holy Spirit leads us into truth about the message of Jesus Christ. That's the truth that Jesus is talking about here. In verse 14, Jesus says, He will glorify me because it's from me that he will receive what he makes known to you. Jesus is informing us what it's going to look like in the life of a believer who is filled with the Holy Spirit, who is influenced by the Holy Spirit, who is controlled by the Holy Spirit. Now, there, as we finish, there are a couple of verses that I want us to tie together here. First of all, from verse 26 of chapter 15, when the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. One of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to testify about Jesus to speak to believers and non-believers about who Jesus is and what he is like. In verse 9, he says, the Holy Spirit will convince people about sin because people do not believe in me. 
His role is to convict. His role is to, to help us to understand that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And in verse 14, he will glorify me because it's from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. The Holy Spirit focuses the world's attention on Jesus. Testifying to, convicting, and bringing glory to his name. Now, I don't know if it's because for the last several months our family has been consumed by this wonderful musical that, that my daughter was in at her school this past week. But I want to think about this in terms of the Holy Spirit being like a stage director, right? The Holy Spirit does not come out on stage. He stays backstage. The one who comes out and stands center stage is Jesus Christ, right? He is the main focus of the musical, right? The Holy Spirit then holds up the applause sign so that people will applaud and bring glory and honor and praise to Jesus Christ. Think about the, the scene as, as a star, Jesus Christ comes out on the stage. The Holy Spirit said, ladies and gentlemen, let me introduce to you Jesus Christ. And that applause sign lights up. That's what the Holy Spirit is about. He's not saying, hey, what about me? He's saying, hey, focus on him. Think about Jesus. Talk about Jesus. Be all about Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He wants us to focus our attention on Jesus. And so a person or a church that is spirit-led is a, a person or a church that is thinking about Jesus. Focus on Jesus. And their lives are all about Jesus. That's what I want to be. And I know that's what you want to be. And with the Spirit's help, that's who we will be. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for your finished work here on earth, Jesus. Thank you that when you finished your work, you, you didn't leave us alone. You sent your spirit, you sent your spirit to be with us, to live inside of us, to be our helper, to be our advocate, to be our comforter, to be all of those things that we need you to be, Holy Spirit. Lord, make us more aware of the Holy Spirit's role in our lives. Help us to, to see and to recognize, to turn to and to call on the Holy Spirit so we might be filled with him and so we might be empowered and encouraged and equipped by him. Lord, we thank you for the example of those who have gone before us in the faith. We thank you for the examples from scripture of what it means to be a follower of Jesus even when times are tough. Lord, we stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before us and, and some who have gone before us stand in our midst today, parents and grandparents. Thank you for the legacy of faith that so many of us walk in. Lord, we thank you that we saw how they handled the good and the bad, and we are so grateful that we get to follow in their footsteps. But Lord, we pray for our Christian brothers and sisters who live around the world in places where being a Christian is dangerous. We pray for the persecuted church around the world, and we ask that you would bring protection for them, that you would guard them and protect them, that you would cause them to stand strong, Stand firm in the faith. Help them not to stumble. Help them to, to stand strong for you. And may their witness change the place in which they live. 
Lord, we also want to pray for brothers and sisters here who face loss, who, who are dealing with pain. Maybe it's a financial loss. Maybe it's a, a health problem. Maybe it's, it's a relational issue. Maybe it's, it's, it's a loved one who has, has left, and now there's that hole in that family circle. Lord, we want to pray for Bill and Marlene DeYoung, whose Bill's mom passed away just recently, his mom Irene. We pray for the DeYoung family, and we ask that you would comfort them, that you would, that you would bring that peace that surpasses all understanding. May there be joy in, in their knowledge that she is with you, Lord. Thank you for that assurance that we can live with that those who die in the faith live forever in your presence. We pray for Dim Rekirk and his family as they continue to, to walk this difficult road as, as Kristen has passed away. We pray that you would be all that they need in these days. May you be the lifter of their head. May you be the strength that they need when they are weak. May you bring people alongside them to, to help them journey along this road. Lord, we continue to pray for those who are right now continuing that marathon there in L.A. Give them the strength to finish strong. Thank you for what their running represents, that it's not just running for themselves, for, for fun and, and for community. Lord, they are running so that others don't have to run for water. They are running so that others don't have to get sick because it's dirty and unsafe water. They are running so that others' lives can be changed. Or we lift up the tensions in the world that, that we read about in the newspapers and online all the time. Russia and Ukraine and China and those difficult, hot, hot issues where, where there is fighting. And Lord, we pray. We pray for your peace. We pray for justice. We pray for an end to the conflicts that, that seem to spread throughout the globe. Lord, we pray that your presence would fill every inch of this, this world that you love so dearly. Thank you, Lord, for listening. Thank you, Lord, for speaking. Thank you, Lord, for being powerful enough that we can feel safe even in the midst of challenging times. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.